Hello, listeners. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. And thank you once again for tuning into Cloud9Fin, your weekly dose of fun and games from the leveraged finance market. I'm Will Cager Smith, US editor at 9Fin and your host for this week's episode. And we're joined today by John McLean from Brandywine Global. He's a portfolio manager out in Ohio. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. All right. So I feel like I say this every time we do a podcast, but the past couple of weeks have been a, a little bit nuts. We've seen some really nasty earnings and some subsequent layoffs in tech some really disappointing earnings out of retail and more signs in the primary market, yet more signs of just how dramatically funding costs have increased. But I want to kick off with tech. So I feel like the conditions for this sell-off have been building for quite a long time, and yet it's still kind of shocking to see it actually happen. Um, We've had a lot of layoffs recently, not just from high-profile companies like Uber and Carvana and Netflix, but from a whole host of other tech firms. So do you think it gets worse from here? Yeah, I do, because what, what's what's led up to this has been an inflation shock that we were unprepared for, uh, and the Fed is clearly behind the curve. That led to a meaningful amount of rate volatility, and that has been terrible for all types of risk assets uh, in 2022. And tech certainly is is deeply impacted by this. And I think you have to look at really uh, what, what's happened during COVID. You had this massive run up in, in equity valuations and uh, massive growth. And that was fueled by fiscal and monetary stimulus. Well, the bar tabs come and do, and we're seeing that uh, stimulus being uh, removed. And if you look at an individual level, uh, you know, a lot of people that joined these hyper growth tech companies in the middle of 2020 uh, thought that they were uh, thought that they would be buying, you know, a second home uh, this year. And now their equity options were which were massively in the money are massively underwater. And I think what we're going to see is tech is going to go through an energy type of reckoning. Uh, similar to what we saw in, in high yield in 2014 and 15, the lead up to the oil price crash in 2015, you saw management teams that felt like to get their stock price up, they would do debt fueled M&A. And the same things happened in tech. To get your stock price up, it was growth at any cost. Now we're going to have that same realization that things like free cash flow, uh, and, um, you know, growth at a responsible pace is really uh, very important in the tech space. Right. And last week, I, I wrote about what this means for, or what this might mean for some of these names who are within the, the leveraged credit universe. I mentioned Uber, Carvana, and Netflix already. There's also Coinbase, which hasn't made layoffs, but is pulling back on hiring quite significantly. And then there's Robin Hood, which isn't a leveraged credit, but which we understand was looking at the market and may have missed its moment to issue. Although then again, Peloton is now a leveraged credit. They got a loan deal done recently and it's in a much worse spot. So the the thing that unites all these companies is that they've spent absolute oceans of cash for the past few years and are now really having to tighten their belts. So it kind of feels like things have suddenly got very real for these guys. What do you think the implications of this are in terms of the way that these companies operate and for the industry as a whole? Yeah, it's going to be a structural change in how these companies operate. The Fed giveth and the Fed taketh away, effectively. 
And I think that it's important to think about how long we've been in this cycle of tech dominance. You know, really, if you're, you're a millennial, um, you, you haven't seen uh, a tech washout like we saw during the, the bubble in 99, 2000. And many of these companies are led by millennials and, and even younger uh, individuals here. So I think really it's, it's this mindset shift. TAM, uh, and, and price to sales are going to be replaced with free cash flow and EVD EBITDA or uh, even price to earnings uh, types of multiples here. So the management teams are going to focus on generating cash flow and the investors are going to focus on that cash flow as a way to evaluate the quality of businesses. And so really, I think the broader implication is that the the consumer has benefited massively from, from these companies giving away a dollar for 50 cents. Now these companies are going to have to charge a dollar twenty for a dollar, and I think there's going to be some inflationary impacts. And we see it in things like, uh, you know, Ubers used to be a lot cheaper than cabs. Now they're a lot more expensive than cabs. Your Netflix bill is starting to look like your old cable bill. So I, I think there are going to be broader inflationary impacts to the end consumer. Okay, so this is the moment where we probably have to mention the Twitter deal. Um, although I kind of hate that this is a thing, but. In the context of the tech sell-off, surely this has to go down in history as one of the worst-timed LBO deals ever. I mean, that seemed like the case even before Snap put out its awful guidance this week, which has made the outlook for Twitter even worse. And obviously, there's a big debate about whether the deal goes through or not. But assuming it does happen, given everything that's happened over the past couple of weeks and before that, you know, the past few months, syndicating that Twitter debt is going to be an absolute nightmare for the underwriters, right? Yeah, Musk, Musk is creative, so you can never fully bet against him. But math is hard, even for a uh, rocket scientist. So, you know, every time I, I feel like I've game theoried this story out, uh, it, it, it changes. And that's a testament to, I think, the creativity that Musk brings to the table, but also the circus he brings. And my guess is actually that he eventually walks away from, from this deal. But if the deal does get done, as it is uh, currently structured, you're dealing with a, a company that's going to have a significant interest burden. We're looking at uh, low single B and um, you know triple C types of ratings from a, from a borrowing perspective. And so if they're borrowing at the prevailing rates today, that's gonna burden the company with at least a billion dollars of interest expense. If you annualize their 1Q CapEx, uh, they're not giving forward guidance. So we'll just assume that that's an annualized number. That's another 640 million. And so you're dealing with a company that out of the gates is going to really struggle to generate any type of free cash flow. And so traditional real money lenders like myself are gonna really struggle at uh, lending to this type of structure. Not necessarily the business, although the business has its own challenges, but the structure is poor. And so I think that, you know, maybe you see people go into the secured part of the stack because of the LTV angle, meaning that Elon and uh, his very rich uh, friends and family are contributing a significant amount of equity capital into this. And so you, you have some comfort as a lender with, with that much capital below you in the stack. But this is a little bit different than your traditional high yield tech LBO because those types of businesses were usually software types of businesses that had uh, subscription revenue, high recurring revenue rates, usually 90 plus percent with high earnings visibility. So that was what allowed these businesses to have 
that you know high type of leverage with twitter you know it's dominated by advertising revenue and that can change uh at the snap of snap of a finger here um and so i think that what you'll see on the unsecured side is that most likely this is going to be non-traditional lenders stepping in things like private credit or uh potentially uh you know again things like vc taking a stake because they want to, you know, they want to fly close to the, the Elon Musk sun here. And uh, I think that it's, it's one of these slow moving train wrecks that, uh, you know, you can't, you can't look away from, but it is going to be a real struggle to get this type of deal done in this type of environment where we are seeing a meaningful slowdown in the fundamentals and a meaningful slowdown in advertising spend. Right. And you kind of answered this already, but I might as well ask it explicitly. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about whether the deal goes through or not, whether Musk can walk away, whether Twitter sues him if he does that. What's your take on on whether this deal actually ultimately happens or not? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Elon Musk, again, is an extremely intelligent individual uh, and has proven his doubters wrong consistently over time. So it's hard to take the other side here. But I would say that there are two parallels here that are interesting analogies for for your audience to think about. And one is Masa-san losing 99% of his wealth during the tech bubble uh, in 99-2000. And then the other, which may be a little less familiar for, for some of your listeners, is Ike Batista. And Ike Batista was a uh, industrial mogul in Brazil and built up a significant fortune across many different industries. But he daisy chained all these uh, businesses together, and you know he used leverage. And the linchpin was an oil and gas company, OGX, which actually was a high yield borrower that finally defaulted uh, in the in the mid 2010s. And uh, Batista lost his entire wealth uh, in a very short period of time here. And I think Musk is smart enough to see that the Twitter bet for him is, is probably not a smart business decision. And therefore, particularly with how the environment has drastically changed since he made his first uh, proposal here, uh, I, I think it would be intelligent to walk away from, from this. And. I think the the piece of you know litigation and whatnot. Uh, I mean, the, this happens all the time, so I'm sure there will be a lot of back and forth. Um, but my guess is that he walks. He doesn't pay the full billion dollars. Um, he pays some type of settlement, and then it's back to business as usual. All right. So we've done the obligatory Twitter mention, uh, although that actually throws up some really interesting points about the broader LBO market. Um, Musk and Twitter obviously not exactly the the model of a successful take private but there's plenty of talk out there about how lbo activity is probably going to be one of the main drivers of supply in leverage loans and to some extent high yield this year um partly that's because the the refi trade is is off the table now um but it's also because uh falling market caps and valuation multiples are making take private deals much more attractive which all makes sense. But as we've seen with Twitter, financing costs are significantly higher than they were just a few weeks ago. And LBO debt, from an investor standpoint, has not exactly performed very well this year, has it? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. But I think what's going to happen is private equity sitting on a war chest. And so they can't take as much leverage out in the marketplace. They're going to have to write a larger equity check to start. And really, the, this is the the beauty of private equity and the long uh, lifetime uh, of uh, their their 
investment vehicles. So you start with a you know, 50, 60, 70% equity check, and you can pull your money out over time as the market gets uh, more conducive to, to lending to these high leverage types of entities. So I think the structure will change a little bit to your point. Um, I do think we're mid-late cycle, which is M&A fireworks, Private equity's got this war chest of capital. Private credit's got a lot of capital to back on the debt side of things. You've got SPACs sitting a lot on a lot of dry powder. And then the strategic buyer is also back too. So I think that that to us is really what's particularly interesting in the high yield market. But yes, uh, LBO debt has struggled. Every single deal that has come this year is underwater. Um, you look at uh, and examples like SPX flow, uh, you know, you, you've had to price these deals at significant OIDs, original issue discounts, meaning that typically bonds and loans come at par to entice buyers in our market to come in. The, the underwriters are having to price these things in the low to mid 90s dollar price. And so I think it's really just the structure is going to change, but we are going to see a lot of activity because the bargain bin is full of pretty high quality businesses at this point. Okay. So you mentioned private credit there. Um, and I want to talk about that for a bit. So private credit is one of the ways that banks are backstopping some of these bigger LBO syndications they've underwritten, like Citrix and Nielsen, both of which are supposedly um, out pre-marketing for a, a post-Memorial Day launch. And there are plenty of others that have gone full private credit with, with giant unitranche financings. Um, so the reason I want to mention it today is because it makes me a little nervous, I guess, that private credit has become so influential, but, and forgive me for this seeming maybe a little elementary, but so at the same time, so private, like it seems like we have all the conditions for a lot of risk to build up in that market because of the the kind of the great position they're in, given everything that's going on, to to take down some really big deals. But at the same time, it's all so opaque um, because it's private by its very nature. So we have very little insight into it. And those deals don't, those financings don't get the same kind of scrutiny that you might get from the broadly syndicated market. market. Um, so I don't know, do, do you find that a little bit worrying ever? Yeah, absolutely. And it's also kind of the spill on effects too. Like is private credit going to take down the entire financial system? Absolutely not. It's not that big, but does it have a bullwhip, bullwhip effect on the marketplace? Yeah, I think it does. Because if you really go back and, and think about what was happening at the end of 2019, it was investors trading liquidity for uh, returns and really this liquidity premium that investors would get became a discount. And that was a function of asset allocators not really wanting to deal with mark to market. You fast forward to COVID and what happens is investors allocated a lot of capital into structures that they couldn't get their money out of. So when there was a dash for cash, you saw it in the public markets. You saw a meaningful exacerbation of volatility in equity and public credit markets due to the allocation to private equity, private credit. I do think that the bodies are buried in private credit. And again, going back to COVID, remember our favorite white knight, the Fed, came in to rescue corporates. But the Fed drew an important line here. They said, hey, we're going to backstop GE, but not PE. I think high yields under the umbrella of the Fed, so to speak. And it's not the same for esoteric ABS or mega cap PE shops. 
they'll have the capital and the structures to survive in private credit. But I think there is going to be a lot of sweat there, especially when you think about the floating rate component of debt. That could get really nasty if we see a recession or if we see rapidly rising interest rates. It's kind of heads you lose, tails you tails you lose as well. And then I think really we, we've kind of got, got to go back to um, supply and demand just micro 101 it happens time and again you know we talked a little bit about energy and high yield leading up to the 1415 crash you had an asset class and high yield that was growing rapidly energy companies could borrow unsecured five six seven percent from lenders that had to deploy capital that ended in tears you think about the leverage loan space in 2014 to 2018 doubling in size and leading up to covid underwriting stand, standards got lax the amount of leverage was high. The adjustments to EBITDA were obnoxious. And then it didn't uh, really present the same sign of downside protection uh, that, it, that it said it would do during COVID. Now it's private credit's turn. You know, again, there's too much capital chasing too little opportunities. There's absolutely adverse selection. These 20, $50 million EBITDA companies are gonna struggle, particularly when the adjustments to EBITDA are aggressive. And like you said, it's an opaque market. So uh, I, I, I think there will be a huge amount of differentiation between the good managers and the bad managers. And I think there is gonna be a lot of sweat and a lot of sleepless nights there. All right, so we've covered a lot of ground here, and clearly there are some asset classes you think are in line for some pain. Um, but based on everything we've discussed, what's your investment strategy for the next few months? Like, where do you see value in the market right now? Yeah, so I mean, our, our primary focus is high yield, but we look across investment grade, convertible bonds, emerging market. We're looking across the corporate space, and we are pretty excited about high yield at, at these levels. You know, uh, I think when we talk to our in, end investors, people are trying to figure out where a bottom is, but you can't time high yield. It's a niche asset class. And so when you're ready, so is everyone else. So we've been saying you got to knock into the asset class here. And when we analyze these uh, spaces, you know, with high yield, you talk about yield of worst and spread. And we were getting real close to that 8% yield, 500 spread. But that needs to be adjusted, actually, because if you think about high yield and why we like it, well, it's very commodity driven. So energy is 13 percent of the index. That was a huge headwind to high yield since 2014. Now it's a tailwind. These companies are making hand. These companies are making money hand over fist. And uh, so you've got to adjust for that. And then you've got to adjust for the quality. So we had, uh, you know, a lot of fallen angels come into high yield. Some of them have left and, and gone back to investment grade. But double B's, the, the least risky part of the high yield marketplace, are above 50%. Now, they were more like in the high 30s during the GFC. So adjusting for spread, I mean, that spread's actually more like 6, 650 when you make these kind of minor adjustments. And, um, <clears throat> You know, the asset class has been lumped in with uh, meme stocks and unprofitable tech. When you look at CNBC or, or, you know, any of these financial publications, it's short unprofitable tech, meme stocks and HYG. And that doesn't make sense to us. But high yields had massive outflows as a percentage of the asset class. It's been orderly selling because there hasn't been any issuance. But we're making the argument that you're supposed to be buying the dislocation here. And we think that valuations are attractive. If you think a soft landing is in place, then high yield is going to be the best place in public credit because you've got the most yield. You've got the most bang for your buck in terms of risk. 
But if you think we go into a recession, then we argue that you take equity chips off the table because high yield does very well versus equities going into and coming out of a normal recession, 91, 01, 09. If you look 18 months forward, high yields beating the S&P 500 by at least 900 basis points and usually by more like, more like 1,200 basis points. So we find a lot of value in high yield. There's a lot of very high quality credits and the dollar price is very interesting here. And that dollar price at 90 cents on the dollar is very different than it's been. Um, you know, the only times you've had the chance to buy high yield at those prices over the last five years have been depths of COVID and the end of uh, 2018 which is kind of like where we're, we're at today with S&P down, you know, roughly 15 to 20 percent um, in high yield valuations looking like they were were back then. Now, uh, as we kind of talked about, there, there's the, the takeout, the yield to outcome. So when we look at our marketplace, yield the worst, you're not going to get the worst on every single security. As we mentioned before, there's a, there's a lot of buyers sniffing around high yield companies. High yield companies can buy their bonds back in the open market, which is a good outcome for, for investors. And so we feel uh, very, very uh, excited about the opportunity in the space. Yep. It feels like the next few months are going to be a ride for sure. Um, but we'll have to check in on that again down the line because that's all we've got time for today. John, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we're wrapping it up there for now. Thanks again for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like or subscribe to the podcast. And don't forget to check in next week with my wonderful colleague, Kat Hidalgo in London for the latest on European LevFin. As for me, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. So until then, take care.